The best conversations I have with my colleagues are the ones that happen when no one is looking, when we're not 100% sure yet what to write. Hopefully, having conversations like this can help you figure out your own point of view. That's kind of our job as Washington Post opinions columnists. I'm Charles Lane, Deputy Opinion Editor. And I'm Amanda Ripley, a contributing columnist. We're going to bring you into these conversations on a new podcast called Impromptu. Follow Impromptu now, wherever you listen. You know you've got a comeback in you. When you take the next step, you're going to make it count. For your career, for your family, for your life. You can earn a degree you're proud of with Purdue Global. Purdue Global is backed by Purdue University, one of the nation's most respected and innovative public universities. This is your chance. This is your opportunity. This is your comeback. Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. The Therapy for Black Girls podcast is your space to explore mental health, personal development, and all the small decisions we can make to become the best possible versions of ourselves. I'm your host, Dr. Joy Harden-Bradford, a licensed psychologist in Atlanta, Georgia, and I can't wait for you to join the conversation every Wednesday. Listen to the Therapy for Black Girls podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Take good care, and we'll see you there. From BBC Radio 4, Britain's biggest paranormal podcast is going on a road trip. I thought in that moment, Oh my God, we've summoned something from this board. This is Uncanny USA. He says, somebody's in the house, and I screamed. Listen to Uncanny USA wherever you get your BBC podcasts. If you dare. Hey, I'm Jay Shetty, and I'm the host of the On Purpose podcast, and I had the opportunity to talk to one of Hollywood's major icons, Michael B. Jordan. In our conversation, Michael shares the highs, the lows, and everything in between, offering a genuine glimpse into his world. The closest to getting what you want is always the hardest. People give up right before they get what they've always wanted to get. Listen to On Purpose with Jay Shetty on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. This is the Anxiety Bites podcast, and I am your host, Jen Kirkman. Today, I am talking to all-around anxiety expert, Lisa Jacob, who also has anxiety and panic herself. Lisa was a child actor, and she's most famous for her roles in Mrs. Doubtfire and Independence Day, two movies that came out in the 90s. I'm sure you're familiar no matter how old you are. But I wanted to talk to Lisa about making a change in your career. Now, she chose to leave her career in acting, but not exactly to immediately uh, segue into helping people with anxiety. She wandered around for a while, not, not exactly sure where life would eventually take her. And those kind of stories really intrigue me because that kind of uncertainty can cause so much anxiety. And for me, being in entertainment myself, I wanted to start this podcast because something was calling me to do anything that I was qualified to do to help people. And I I think I'm qualified to talk to people who can help you. (laughs) Let's start there. Lisa and I talk about a lot of things. We bond over panic attacks. Now, I will say this episode, I'm a little chatty. 
I just sometimes I just connect with a guest where I feel like we're just out for coffee together. And you might think, God, this is a lot of Jen. But I just, I don't know. I just wanted to tell her everything. And I did get to ask her every single thing I had planned. But, you know, if you're still on the fence about me, you might be like, it's kind of a lot of Jen in this episode. But maybe I had too much coffee that day. And, you know, my ADHD makes me real chatty. Anyway, so today, Lisa is a mental wellness educator trained and specializing in workshop retreat facilitation. She creates custom content about anxiety for corporate events. She's a keynote speaker for all types of organizations. She teaches yoga and writing for managing anxiety, depression, or trauma. She's also the podcast host of, I said that backwards. That's okay, I'm leaving it in. She's the host of the podcast, Embrace Your Weird, where she talks very personally about her own anxiety and interviews a lot of veterans. And she does a lot of work with war veterans on PTSD. We get into how a former child actress is actually so instrumental in the lives of many veterans, as she calls herself. She is a pacifist Canadian vegetarian, and she never thought it would be something she was doing either. She's written two books. One is called You Look Like That Girl, A Child Actor Stops Pretending and Finally Grows Up. And her Latest book, Not Just Me, Anxiety, Depression, and Learning to Embrace Your Weird. Now, for any of you who have anxiety and you've never purchased a book about anxiety, I really recommend the book, Not Just Me, because not only do you have Lisa's personal stories, you have stories from people that she has worked with as well. And she has a lot of facts about anxiety, panic, social anxiety. It's a really good starting point if you want a nice overall book that can help you feel like you're not the only one. It's not some doctor talking to you based on studies they've done, but it's a real person. And of course, everything is linked in the show notes. So if you want to take one of Lisa's online anxiety management workshops, if you want to take one of her donation-based yoga classes online, and of course, if you want to get her books, go to her website. Again, all of that is in the show notes. What I really like about Lisa is I can just tell that she is meant to do this because she lights up when she talks about helping other people with anxiety. And I'm so glad that she does what she does. We need 70 million more of her to help with, I think, what is probably a global pandemic part two, which is anxiety. So I hope you enjoy my conversation with Lisa. And again, sorry for all the gem. Thank you for being here, Lisa. I'm I'm really excited. I feel like you're a real um, kindred spirit. Oh, I'm I'm so thrilled to meet you, and so excited to talk about all this stuff. Well, you know, I've I've been geeking out on your work all week, so I've been listening to your podcast. Which are you still doing? Are there new episodes up? i because I've been going way back. Yeah, I have a new episode that came out a couple of weeks ago. Okay, great. Um, I, I work with a lot of veterans. And so my most recent episode was with someone who is actually currently in the military talking about moral injury and post-traumatic stress and all those kinds of things. Oh, cool. Yeah. And your podcast is called Embrace Your Weird. Yes. it's You guys will love it. After, of course, after you listen to this episode, go download Embrace Your Weird. Lisa is in her closet because the sound is best from there. And she is just, it's a lot of the episodes are just you talking to us and it's very soothing. And you're just, you remind me of, I'm going to compliment myself right now. You remind me of me in the sense that when we talk about anxiety, we seem to light up. You know what I mean? 
Which is strange, right? Yeah. Because it's a topic that I think most people are so reluctant to talk about. And then when they do talk about it, they kind of talk about it like this. And, yeah. And they get really quiet and just filled with shame. And then there are people like us who are like, oh my God, yeah, <laughs> like just crack this shit open, let's go. And yeah. so I always feel so good when I can talk to somebody else uh, who really kind of feels the same way. And we'll get through, you know, your whole history of all of your anxieties and, and all that. And, but it's interesting because so I, I think you and I, I'm a little older, so I don't mean to say you're, you're my age. I am, I am older, everybody. Um, I'm four years older. And, but I don't know if you relate to this growing up pre-internet. I know you and I started having panic and anxiety attacks rather young, way before the internet. I mean, you know. And like you, I felt like I was probably going insane. And I thought once everyone finds out, I will live in a hospital the rest of my life. And, you know, I was really not even trying to be funny. I really thought that. So I thought, keep this a secret as long as possible until I absolutely can't live this way. And then I'll basically like turn myself in, you know. And I was completely serious. I mean, I thought that was real. You know, there was only you're crazy, like a Bugs Bunny cartoon, like blah, 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 and you're normal. There was nothing else. That was it. Those were the two options. Yeah. And so I thought, I'm not normal, but I guess I'll wait until I'm, you know, doing like the Bugs Bunny cartoon and going blah, blah, blah. So basically, I felt really alone, right? And so then, you know, years go by and I, I, I call myself like an anxious and recovering and former fear flyer. And I still have panic attacks a couple times a year, but it's so like, oh, whatever, you know? But I had this really naive notion that, Young people, although they have, you know, obviously every generation has ridiculous things to deal with societally and personally. But I thought, well, the one area where young people are luckier than me is that they can just type the word anxiety into the computer and they'll get all the help they need. And there's so much free stuff out there and they won't feel alone. And I really thought that. And it wasn't until by being a comedian going on the road that young people were coming to my shows and they were saying, um, in the meet and greet line after, hey, thanks for talking about anxiety on stage. And I'd be like, oh, and the minute they say that, I, I write a story for them. Oh, they're in therapy. They're doing great. I'm like, oh, good. To, good to meet another one. Bye. And I would get DMs from them on social media later after the show saying, well, how do you handle it? And I'm like, what do you mean? You don't know? Like, not in a rude way, but like, I'm blown away here that I thought maybe you guys had figured it out. And I realized where I was being a typical anxious person is that I thought I was the only, like, I knew I wasn't the only one who had anxiety, but I thought I was the only one who felt alone. And I thought it was because of the internet not being there. And that's not why, I mean, it could be one of the reasons, but that's why it's such an epidemic, right? Is even with all of the voices saying, it's okay, I have anxiety too, and you can Google it and a lot of help comes up, people still feel alone and ashamed. And that is heartbreaking. It really is heartbreaking. And that is exactly why I started doing the work that I do. Because when I wrote my two books and went out and did book tours and was, you know, reading passages and doing talks in colleges and high schools, I would have that exact same situation where at the end of the talk, people would come up to me, oftentimes younger people, and be like, I have anxiety too. I've never told anyone. I have no clue what to do about this. Please help. 
Yeah. And I think, you know, that first step, even though some of the stigma is starting to diminish around this stuff, it can still be really hard to admit to yourself yeah. that you're struggling with these things, that you need help from someone else. And I think so a lot of us are still getting getting stuck with, with labels and terminology and all those sorts of things. I've definitely gotten emails from people saying, you know, I know you do, you know, help people with anxiety, but you can't help me. I have it worse than anyone. And, you know, I I would, if I were a psychiatrist, I would probably delve deeper into, I think you want that to be true. Just because it would be at least an answer. I can't be helped. I mean, no one wants to find out you can live with this every day and just feel a little bit, um, you know, like you live with it every day and you have your your tools and your coping mechanisms. I don't know if that's all that attractive to people in a sense, right? Yeah. And I think it does become kind of like a security blanket in some ways. And I also find it really interesting, especially with people who are artists who have anxiety, mm. who tie this idea of well, my my art, my writing, my comedy, my music all comes from the same place that my anxiety or my depression comes from. So yeah. if I deal with my anxiety and my depression, what happens to my art? And yeah. I think we get really tied into this idea of like the, the tragic suffering artist. Mm-hmm. And I know personally that like when I'm depressed, my writing is crap. That's right. Like I do better work when I feel okay. And so being able to kind of tap into, well, what is it about feeling a little bit better that freaks you out? You know, what is it that you feel like you would have to let go of? Oh, that's a great question. You know, what is it that you feel like you would then have to move forward and do if you weren't so burdened by the anxiety? So I think it gets super, super messy. Do you find that people's answers are, once they tell you what they're afraid of, they're kind of illogical and like that fear would never come to pass anyway? Or are they legitimate fears? I think it's a bit of both. Yeah. I think for me, definitely my my fears around it were, were illogical. Mm-hmm. But um, yeah, I mean, everybody's coming from a different place with it. Everybody gets different messages around what it means to have anxiety, to have mental wellness issues, you know, back from when we were a kid. Yeah. Like what messages did you get from your family? What did you see around you? And how are you carrying that forward into into your life today? It's interesting. You know, Elizabeth Gilbert, the author? Of course. Um, In her book, I think it's Big Magic. She talks about that the artist as the, you know, person that has demons and, you know, I need my demons to do my art. And she says something, I'm paraphrasing, like, well, the demons can inform what you want to talk about, but the angels do the work. Something like that. Isn't that so good? I totally got goosebumps with that. I got it too, just repeating. You don't have to torture yourself and live that way you recall, right? And so to any artists out there, trust me, you'll never forget how this anxiety feels. So if you need it for your art and you get healthy, you'll be able to recall it, no problem, you know? Um, but yeah. it's it's not even like, I don't even think that's people's worry. They worry that it's like, this is who I am, you know? And and they're allowed to change, you know? And to hell with anyone who doesn't like it, you know? Um, so that brings me to you. So, okay, 
When you, um, I'm just looking at my notes because I, I get, I've ADD. I'm like ADD theater. I'm like, I keep saying what I'm going to ask you. And then I keep being like, but wait. Um, so you left acting, at, you were a child actor and you left acting in 2001 at age 22. Mm-hmm. And I'm so fascinated by this because there's a million ways I could go with this, but I want to talk all around the sense of like the irony, right? Of it wasn't acting that gave you anxiety. Like you were just a person with anxiety, happened to be an actor. And you felt that there was just something else you needed to do, but you didn't know what it was yet. That is what's so interesting to me. It's like, you're getting this calling, but whoever's calling you is not giving you all the information. It's like you're getting hang-up calls from your destiny. And you're like, what am I supposed to? But you know you have to leave. And so you do. And it's such a great testament to patience and trusting and following your heart. But I know that you originally left thinking maybe you wanted to be a writer. And so just take us through leaving. And was there any sense in your head yet that you wanted to work with people who have anxiety? <laughs> I, I love, I love hearing like your interpretation of that story and that time, <laughs> because it makes me sound like I had my shit together and I was just really wise and intuitive <laughs> and absolutely none of that is true. Um, yeah. So I was, You know, I was 22. I was in LA. I had been working as an actor since I was four. So I was like 18 years into this career. Wow. I had, you know, done Mrs. Doubtfire. I had done Independence Day. And everybody kept telling me I was living the dream life. Like I had won the golden ticket. I was doing the best possible thing with my life that a human could do. (laughs) And I was miserable. I mean, my depression was really bad. I had horrible anxiety. I have a panic disorder. So I was having three and four panic attacks a day. Um, I was a mess. All I knew was that I did not want to be one of those stereotypical child actor train wrecks. I knew I did not want that to be my path. Yeah. I was becoming increasingly aware of the realities of the film industry, the superficiality, the misogyny, the competition, all of those things that I didn't feel like that was an authentic part of my path forward. I had enjoyed my time being an actor, but I felt very strongly that it was done. I got thrown out of high school uh, while filming Mrs. Doubtfire. So I had never graduated from high school. Well, this is a great story too, if you want to share with my listeners, because I'm, I'm sure we'll have a lot of crossover from the comedy world that, that Robin Williams, sweet, sweet, sweet man that he is. I mean, I've only met him once. I didn't know him like you did, but that he wrote a letter to your high school, right? Yeah, he did. So um, we were a few months into filming Doubtfire. I was doing a correspondence school, again, pre-internet. Yeah, uh, so no virtual <laughs> learning back then. So I was, uh, you know, sending my schoolwork back and forth to, to my high school. And my high school just sent a letter one time and said, you know what, this is too much work for our teachers having to put together, you know, study packets for you. Um, don't come back when you finish filming. <laughs> wow. Don't come back. Um, 
super devastating for a 14 year old yeah. uh, to have your formal education just sort of ended like that. And uh, so Robin saw that I was upset and wrote a letter to my high school, which is, uh, which I still have. It's so sweet. I actually have it up on my website. If anybody wants to see it, it's at um, hellolisajacob.com. But I- uh, We'll link so it in touched. the show notes. We'll link it in the show notes. I was so touched uh, by the letter that he wrote, just saying like, hey, this kid is trying to balance her education and her career. Can you please- like help her with that. And so the high school got the letter and they framed the letter and they put it up in the principal's office, but they didn't ask me to come back to <laughs> school. And this was in uh, Canada? The school mm-hmm. was in, you're from, was yeah. it Toronto? Outside of Toronto. Outside yeah. of Toronto, yeah. Oh, that is, it. but that, doesn't that just encapsulate everything that is so weird about the way people react to someone in the business? Like, Oh my God, a letter from Robin Williams. We're not going to digest the content of it. We're just going <laughs> to idolize him, put it on the wall, but treat the real actor we know in real life. Bye-bye, you can't come back. And then at the same time you're hearing you're living the dream. And it's like how nobody knows what you're living, you know? Yeah. It's, if it's not the dream for you, it's not the dream. And I think that frustrates people. Like, well, you're good at acting. What do you mean you don't love it? It's like, I don't know. Maybe you were just only supposed to do it until you were... Um, 22, you know, maybe you weren't supposed to do it forever. I I really think that's true. I mean, and like, let's look at other people in quote unquote normal jobs, right? A lot of people do something for 18 years and decide, you know what, it's time to change paths. And it's not this huge dramatic thing where people are shocked and have opinions about it. Um, But I, you know, I got to this point where I really felt like I needed to make a change. I needed to leave LA and I needed to try to figure out who I was underneath the actor because that is who I had been since I was four years old. So it, it really took a while for me. I eventually got my GED. I went to college. I had always loved writing. So I kind of went back to that. Did you study writing in college? I didn't. Oh, okay. Which is amazing because I was so terrified to let anybody read any of my writing. I, I, I couldn't handle doing it in college. I studied sociology um, because I felt like I didn't understand regular society. I felt like I had kind of grown up in this weird movie subculture. Yeah. It's almost like coming out of a cult. I mean, not as extreme, but it has its own languages and abbreviations, you know, it has its own society. And so you're like, oh, here I am in a different world, you know? Yeah. We'll be right back after this quick message from one of our sponsors. Finding the right news podcast can feel like dating. It seems promising until you start listening. When you hit play on Post Reports, you'll get fascinating conversations and sometimes a little fun, too. I'm Martine Powers. And I'm Elahe Azadi. Martine and I are the hosts of Post Reports. The show comes out every weekday from The Washington Post. You can follow and listen to Post Reports wherever you get your podcasts. It'll be a match, I promise. Hey, my name's Jay Shetty, and I'm the host of On Purpose. I just had a great conversation with Michael B. Jordan, and you can listen to it right now. Michael is known for his performances in both film and television. His breakout role was in Fruitvale Station, 
playing Oscar Grant, which earned him widespread praise and numerous award nominations. His portrayal of Killmonger in Marvel's Black Panther, one of my favorites, further solidified his status as one of Hollywood's leading actors, earning him widespread acclaim for his complex and compelling performance. In our conversation, Michael really opens up. You're going to love listening to it, and I can't wait for you to check it out. The closest to getting what you want is always the hardest. It's always the feeling when you're getting ready. To, you know, people give up right before they get what they've always wanted to get. People quit. Listen to On Purpose with Jay Shetty on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcast, or wherever you get your podcasts. Bring a little optimism into your life with The Bright Side, a new kind of daily podcast from Hello Sunshine, hosted by me, Danielle Robay, and me, Simone Boyce. Every weekday, we're bringing you conversations about culture, the latest trends, inspiration, and so much more. Thank you for taking the light, and you're going to shine it all over the world, and it makes me really happy. I never imagined that I would get the chance to carry this honor and help be a part of this legacy. Listen to The Bright Side on America's number one podcast network, iHeart. Open your free iHeart app and search The Bright Side. I'm Katia Adler, host of The Global Story. Over the last 25 years, I've covered conflicts in the Middle East, political and economic crises in Europe, drug cartels in Mexico. Now I'm covering the stories behind the news all over the world in conversation with those who break it. Join me Monday to Friday to find out what's happening, why, and what it all means. Follow The Global Story from the BBC wherever you listen to podcasts. Every family has skeletons in their closet. Mine certainly does. Ones that go back a hundred years and reach thousands of miles back to our hometown in Sicily. Ever since I can remember, my relatives told the story of my great-great-grandmother who was killed by the mafia. I'm Joe Piazza, and in my new podcast, I'm taking on a generational vendetta, visiting the scene of the crime, confronting mafia experts, tracking down Italian officials, and even consulting mediums to set the record straight on my great-great-grandmother's mysterious disappearance. And in between the fact-finding missions, I'll be drinking a lot of wine and eating all of the pasta. Come to Italy with me to solve this 100-year-old murder mystery. Listen to The Sicilian Inheritance on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. So it wasn't until after college that I started writing more as as a way to really process my own feelings on leaving LA and trying to find my path forward. And I, I ended up writing my memoir because I wanted to just as sort of catharsis, get it out and get on the page. That memoir, everybody, um, which I read it and it's great. It's called You Look Like That Girl, A Child Actor Stops Pretending and Finally Grows Up. Get it everywhere you get books. And that came out in 2015? Yes. Okay. Yeah. So you wrote your memoir after college. Yeah. And then, you know, it was the, the thing that we just talked about that, you know, people kept coming up to me because in the memoir, I do talk about having anxiety. And they just said, can we please talk more about this? So yeah. there you go. Second book. Um, so yep. the second second book is all about anxiety, depression, panic, trauma. And I interview a lot of other people and talk about kind of the latest research on what works and what doesn't because... 
I just felt like that was something that we all needed. This book is so great. It's called Not Just Me, Anxiety, Depression, and Learning to Embrace Your Weird. And what I love about this book too, I think if anyone has to buy one book about anxiety to start with, buy this. Because yeah, like you said, it's one chapter will be your personal story and then you give case examples and people you've worked with and you've worked with with war veterans. And I mean, you get into every single kind of anxiety and panic and everything in this book. So highly recommend. So anyway, so you didn't really know that this was a career path until after the first memoir. And then, so then did you start working with people after that as you were writing the second book? Yeah, it kind of evolved as I was writing the second book. I started working with uh, organizations that that help support combat veterans. So I started co-leading retreats where I would teach. I'm a yoga teacher as well. So I would teach yoga and meditation, therapeutic writing. And then I started working one-on-one with people and then teaching mindfulness classes. And it all just kind of evolved and in a way that I, I think is a total shock to me because thinking of me as a teacher, like I, I don't like it when people look at me. Like I, I don't want to be yeah. the person getting attention. There's a reason I left acting, but I'm so And also, passionate. you know, with acting, you're playing characters. I mean, people are looking at you, but you don't see them looking at you because you're you're at home and they're at the movies. You know, it's like, yeah, and having to act like yourself yeah. is so much scarier totally. than having to act like somebody else and say the words that somebody else wrote and wear yeah. the shirt that somebody else picked out. Um, but but for me, the the tools that I found to help me with anxiety and depression were so life-changing that I really felt like, oh my God, I have to tell other people about this. So Mm. like, Not Just Me is the book that I wish I had had when I was in my darkest moments. The podcast is talking about the topics I wish people had been talking about. It's all very self-serving. No, but I could feel that in this beautiful way reading your book. I knew it. I knew it in my heart and I feel that way about myself. Everything I do is to reach out to the young version of me and uh, and other people like her, you know, and and to just say, I'm doing this because I wish I had this. And so where did you get your tools? Like, did you go to therapy for the first time? Um, you know, when? how did that all come about? Like, how did you know, uh, okay, I need to talk to someone and where did you find them? So I did CBT, cognitive behavioral therapy. And so I started doing that when I was in college. And so that was incredibly helpful because I'm a nerd. I like homework, like give me tasks, give me a checklist and I will get it done. And so CBT is very much... um, kind of you go through this process and you do this step and then you do this step and then you do this step. So for me, I had tried kind of talk therapy where I would just go in and 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 just kind of like, here's everything that's in my head. That didn't work so well for me because I was just kind of ruminating and going over and over and over it. Yeah. But when I had really specific tools and steps, I found that to be incredibly helpful. So also my therapist started talking to me about meditation Mm. and started giving me books by Jon Kabat-Zinn 
And then that just sort of sent me down this rabbit hole of mindfulness. I started practicing yoga, which is really just sort of a, a, a form of moving meditation. And so that changed everything for me. And then I started reading everything I possibly could about yoga, meditation, mindfulness, and then did like 800 hours of training on those things. And, yeah. and it all kind of just snowballed from there. I feel like CBT is like, we are putting the fire out. Here's the tools you can learn when you're panicking. And then when you have time, go see what happened in your childhood, if anything, or, you know, whatever. Because it is part of it. Like we learn unconscious ways to cope from our parents, even if our parents were lovely. You know, we pick up their bad habits that they learned or whatever. Um, but it's interesting too, because you say yoga, meditation, and I know people are like, I don't want to do that. But your book is so funny because you talk about how much you hated yoga. I mean, you were just oh. like, I don't want to do this. And you took a class and you're like, no. <laughs> so to everyone listening, like, yeah, that's how it starts. You know? It really is. And I think it's so interesting to, uh, and this is going to sound so therapy-ish, but like, look at your resistance. Just look at it. Just yeah. take a moment and go, wow, you know, something is being suggested here. And I have just decided like, fuck, you No, I'm shutting this down. <laughs> oh, okay. Well, like maybe investigate that a little bit. Why do you have such strong opinions on that? What What is it that like is kind of triggering you and making you roll your eyes? And it could be any number of things, right? Yeah. It could be like, oh, it seems like hippie stuff or, oh, that couldn't possibly help me because my issues are so intense or I tried that once and I thought it was terrible or it's so trendy that it yeah. can't possibly be any good, right? So that's fine, and if so many people are talking about it, and if you are having people who are, you know, very publicly saying, I get it, mm-hmm. I was not into this either, but this is something that does not cost you anything. Literally, I have free beginner videos on YouTube. You don't have to leave your house, you don't have to change out of your PJs. Mm-hmm. Like, what would happen if you just came to it with a little bit more open-mindedness and came to it with this sense of like, I really am having a hard time, so I'll try anything. Well, I think it has to get to that point. And I think too, it's like you're naming 10 million things, cognitive behavior, yoga, meditation, mindfulness, and the list goes on. We're saying all these things are part of the toolkit. You may not do all of them all day, every day, but they're there. And it's like, no one is saying yoga is going to cure everything. That would be ridiculous, you know? Right. Um, You know, I went to therapy probably like exactly the same time you did. And it was the late 90s. And I'd never heard the word mindful. Yeah. So when I went to this therapist, she was not hippy-dippy at all. She was just like, oh, yeah, so your panic attacks are blah, blah, blah. And explain the whole, you know, response to something that's not there and adrenaline and the whole thing, the whole caveman story that people yeah. get. And she said, uh, what I want you to do, this is going to seem unrelated to everything, but I want you to go home tonight, take a shower. And I want you to think about nothing else but what you're doing. Pick up the soap, feel how the soap feels, narrate to yourself the bubbles, everything. Now, anytime any other thought comes in your head, just go right back to narrating the shower. Now I'm rubbing my knee with a loofah, you know, just do that and see how you feel when you get out of the shower. And I did. And I remember 
noticing how many times other thoughts were trying to come in. Yeah. I mean, I was shocked. And I went back and told her, and then she dropped it on me. Well, that, what you did was mindfulness. And I went, oh, cool. Now we are lucky because we didn't have 97,000 Instagram influencers and people, you know, trying to make a buck off it or saying words that just, they've made it meaningless now. Mm -hmm. So now I can see where people are like, oh, this again. But it's like, well, it keeps coming up for a reason, like you said, you know. And also I think too, like I'm learning with my anxiety, my reactions were a big problem. Just so reactive. And like you said, when when we're like, no, and having that like defiance, it's like, when you really aren't into something, it's so much quieter. It's just like, yeah, I don't think, I don't know. Right. So it's like, you know, it's like a therapist's dream when someone freaks out at a suggestion. They're like, oh, here's the gold mine, you know, but it's true. It's, it's like anyone listening, just all you have to do today is notice your reaction as we talk about mindfulness. Absolutely. Just like what, what is true for today? I'm in acceptance that whatever, what of whatever, just acceptance to, well, the car blew up. I've got to accept that that happened, you know? Um, I love to in your book. And I think this is what I like, but it's got that like big sister Gen X vibe of we do at a certain point in our anxiety journey, like maybe be delicate at first, but at a certain point, it's very impactful to have a little tough love yeah. because there is a narcissism to anxiety. And so what you say about people who say, I can't meditate. I have too, oh, I have too many thoughts. I can't sit still. And you say in your book, like, yeah, that's not at all unique at all. That's not, you're not that special. And your brain is not special. I think you're, I think that little ounce of tough love, like you're not special works for me. Like if anyone needs to like kind of slap me out of an anxious moment, that's, that works for me. Some people um, need a little more gentleness, but if there's anyone out there that needs that kind of slap, like you're not that special. Isn't that a relief, right? Yes. (laughs) Yeah. I absolutely needed that. Yeah. Because I just, I needed, I needed to hear that again, it gets back to like, I am not the only one and I can get so caught up in my life and my drama and my anxiety. And oh my God, isn't this just the worst thing ever? You know what? Maybe if I just took a breath, maybe if I stepped out of my own head for a moment and maybe if I went and like tried to help somebody else for like 15 minutes, what would happen then? You know, and and there are times that I feel like um, I was in this place where I was being too coddled, where I just needed to be like, okay, come on, you can do this. And I think it comes from this place of like, we're stronger than we think we are. Yes. And that's what I love to tell people. Like you can handle so much more than you think you can handle. And you can handle being uncomfortable. You know, I am not saying choose pain, Mm -hmm. but what I'm saying is you don't have to run away because things get uncomfortable. Like you can breathe through that. You can handle that. And you can come out the other end not being so scared to be uncomfortable. And that's when things get really interesting. But once you, once you do one thing that makes you uncomfortable and you get through it, oh my God, then you have your own self to keep learning from. So you yeah. have proof. Oh my God, I can do it. And then your, your mind changes about what you want. Instead of wanting to get rid of this thing, you realize, oh, I can live with this. It actually feels, you know, I used to have a, I mean, the fear flying I had was so ridiculous. It was over the top. And I have flown to Australia by myself three times. 
since then wow. with no panic attack. Now I do have dissolvable clonopin that I do take, like, but I'm talking the, tiny, the, the, yeah, the tiniest amount. And it's part of like, you know, keeping my nervous system down. But I'm telling you, the, the panic I used to have before you could have put me under anesthesia and I'd be panicking. Like it was, <sighs> and I mean, it was just, my life was so small because of it, you know? And yeah. it opened up my life to where I felt like such a badass. I felt also like, of course, we judge ourselves. So I felt like an idiot. Like you are in your thirties. You feel like a badass because you got off a plane. I'm like, I do kind of, you know, but you celebrate are. Yeah. That is a massive thing to overcome. And it's such, I mean, that is such a big deal. And I, I, I think it's so important to celebrate those things because it doesn't matter if on the other side of it, you're like, that seems silly. It doesn't matter in the moment that was very real to you and very painful for you. And so being able to celebrate when we make those steps forward, that that's what it's all about. Tell me about your panic attack. So I know you had your first panic attack and I'm so jealous I could die on the set of Night Court, which was my favorite show growing up. And I was probably watching it having panic attacks myself. So, um, so you, so I, I know that it was like the first time you kind of did something in front of a live studio audience. Now, was that what gave yeah. you a panic attack, or do you think you just had a panic attack for the first time and it seemed to all it's come a together? Really good question. It's funny because I started working as an actor so young. There's kind of this chicken and egg situation where yeah. it's like. No, I think I was probably just sort of an anxious human, an anxious kid. Yeah. We know now that some of anxiety is just kind of hardwired into your DNA. Yep. So I think I was anxious anyway. And then I think some of the stress of, you know, having a film career before I hit double digits, you know, that's, that's yeah. kind of a thing too. Yeah. But um, yeah, I think, you know, being in front of a live studio audience when all I, I had done before was, you know, commercials and TV shows with single camera, that was nerve wracking. There were a lot of people there and I hadn't totally known what I was in for with that. So yeah, panic attack on the on the set of Night Court. And, and then you and, you felt like you were dying. And did you tell anyone or did that, did, did your mind just kind of tweak that day? Were you just like different forever, if that makes sense? Like now I have a secret. I think I, I sort of felt like I had a secret. Mm. Like this was something shameful that I was looking around and no one else was having a panic attack. <laughs> and so I just thought, okay, well, this is clearly not how we operate around here. Let me just shove this down as, as far as it can go and, and pretend that it's, it's not happening. And it's funny you say no one else is having a panic attack. Well, you know, I know sometimes they can be pretty intense, but at the end of the day, when you're having one, sometimes no one knows either. Yeah. So then did they start, because something in your book that was interesting was you talked about agoraphobia and social anxiety, which I want to ask you about. Like, did that, did things start kind of um, ramping up after that? Were the panic attacks becoming more frequent? Yeah. So, I, I, you know, it would kind of ebb and flow. Yeah. And so sometimes it would be worse. Sometimes it would be a little bit easier. But definitely, you know, by the time I got into my late teens, it was really intense. And also, I think that kind of coincided. I did Doubtfire when I was 14. And so, you know, from that point on, I, I, I was much more recognizable. So, you know, going out in public got much more challenging. I would get mobbed, I would get grabbed. 
Um, I would, you know, not be able to get through a meal without people coming up. So, you know, being in public changed a lot when I was about 15. And so that I think was, was another thing that kind of helped to, um, move along some of my my social anxiety and my desires to not leave the house. We'll be right back. Finding the right news podcast can feel like dating. It seems promising until you start listening. When you hit play on Post Reports, you'll get fascinating conversations and sometimes a little fun too. I'm Martine Powers. And I'm Elahe Azadi. Martine and I are the hosts of Post Reports. The show comes out every weekday from The Washington Post. You can follow and listen to Post Reports wherever you get your podcasts. It'll be a match, I promise. Hey, my name's Jay Shetty, and I'm the host of On Purpose. I just had a great conversation with Michael B. Jordan, and you can listen to it right now. Michael is known for his performances in both film and television. His breakout role was in Fruitvale Station, playing Oscar Grant, which earned him widespread praise and numerous award nominations. His portrayal of Killmonger in Marvel's Black Panther, one of my favorites, further solidified his status as one of Hollywood's leading actors, earning him widespread acclaim for his complex and compelling performance. In our conversation, Michael really opens up. You're going to love listening to it, and I can't wait for you to check it out. The closest to getting what you want is always the hardest. It's always the feeling when you're getting ready to, you know, people give up right before they get what they've always wanted to get. People quit. Listen to On Purpose with Jay Shetty on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcast, or wherever you get your podcasts. Bring a little optimism into your life with The Bright Side, a new kind of daily podcast from Hello Sunshine, hosted by me, Danielle Robey, and me, Simone Boyce. Every weekday, we're bringing you conversations about culture, the latest trends, inspiration, and so much more. Thank you for taking the light, and you're going to shine it all over the world, and it makes me really happy. I never imagined that I would get the chance to carry this honor and help be a part of this legacy. Listen to The Bright Side on America's number one podcast network, iHeart. Open your free iHeart app and search The Bright Side. I'm Katia Adler, host of The Global Story. Over the last 25 years, I've covered conflicts in the Middle East, political and economic crises in Europe, drug cartels in Mexico. Now I'm covering the stories behind the news all over the world in conversation with those who break it. Join me Monday to Friday to find out what's happening, why, and what it all means. Follow The Global Story from the BBC wherever you listen to podcasts. Every family has skeletons in their closet. Mine certainly does. Ones that go back a hundred years and reach thousands of miles back to our hometown in Sicily. Ever since I can remember, my relatives told the story of my great-great-grandmother who was killed by the mafia. I'm Joe Piazza, and in my new podcast, I'm taking on a generational vendetta, visiting the scene of the crime, confronting mafia experts, tracking down Italian officials, and even consulting mediums to set the record straight on my great-great-grandmother's mysterious disappearance. And in between the fact-finding missions, I'll be drinking a lot of wine and eating all of the pasta. Come to Italy with me to solve this 100-year-old murder mystery. Listen to The Sicilian Inheritance on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Podcasts. 
Can you take us through a panic attack just for someone listening? If they're like, oh, I think I have that, but I don't know. I mean, everyone's symptoms vary here and there, but what what is the panic attack? Like what happens when it starts to come on and then what is it like at its worst? So for me, I can always tell when panic is coming on because my hands get really tingly and numb. Hmm. So one thing that you learn when you're learning how to manage panic attacks is looking for the really early physical signs. Because when you can find those early physical signs, you can kind of catch the panic attack when it's at like a two or a three, Mm. because when it gets to a nine, it's really hard to come down from. Yeah. So for me, I always look for that, that, tingling in my hands where they start to go a little bit numb. And like, there's all kinds of biological reasons for that. It's about changes in the blood flow. You're kind of going into fight or flight. So the blood is all going to the muscles that are needed to run away from a saber-toothed tiger. Yeah. So you don't really need to have a lot of blood in your hands for that. So for me, it tends to start that way. I will get the heart palpitations. Mm. My mouth gets really dry. I get tunnel vision. So it's really hard for me to see. It's like I can just see these little tiny pinpoints. Um, I get kind of a ringing, a buzzing in my ears. So I can't hear very well if someone's talking to me. It's They kind of turn into like the Peanuts cartoon where I can't really make out what they're saying. Yeah. And then I start sweating and then I get really dizzy. Um, So at that point, I normally tend to sit on the floor because I'm worried I'm going to pass out. So I get as low as I can. And then, you know, mentally at that point, because then it's at like a nine or a 10, right? So I'm like, well, I just have to ride this through at this point. I know that I'm sort of in it for the panic attack. And then I run through all the facts in my head, which is, this is a panic attack. I have Mm -hmm. been through this before. This is not a heart attack. Mm -hmm. I'm not actually going to die. And at max, this is going to be 10 minutes. Yeah. But what a long 10 minutes, right? Absolutely. (laughs) But yeah, you're right. Somewhere in your brain, your brain is hearing you say that to yourself. And it does work. Just doesn't feel like it's working, but it works. Yeah. But it's, I mean, it took me years in order to get to that point where I could at least say those facts to my head. Sure. Right. Which is like, okay, we have done this. We used to do this four times a day. Remember now we're just, it's going to be a few minutes. We're going to sit on the floor, lie on the floor. We're going to try to breathe. And then in a little while we'll get up. Um, but I think, you know, the number of people who end up in the emergency room for their first panic attack is like astronomical because it feels very much like a heart attack. So I think, um, you know, being able to look out most of the time now, when I feel my hands go, I'm like, okay, panic is starting. Let me start my breathing exercises. Let me start my mindfulness exercises. Let me try to get something cold. I will grab an ice cube. That helps me a lot or run my wrists under cold water. Right. If I'm with someone that I'm comfortable telling, I will say, hey, I'm having a panic attack. Um, If that person is my husband, he knows exactly what I need him to do in those moments because he has been with me through 70 billion of these. (laughs) Um, 
So you, you know, you learn these tools so that you can, you know, you can bring it down if you can catch it in time. And to just say it out loud, I mean, it takes a lot of courage. That was my first assignment with flying. Go up to the flight attendant before the panic attack starts and say, I don't need you to do anything now, but I have panic disorder and I might have a panic attack on the flight. Just just saying that out loud because it helps me. And they'll go, okay. And it's honestly like sometimes it's just better to be humiliated because it, it, <laughs> the panic, like it's like, more overwhelming than the panic. You're like, okay, at least I'm humiliated, but not panicking, you know, like anything to just ground yourself. Because you're right, that tunnel vision is so evolutionary and it feels like you're not on the earth. Like it feels like you're starting to float away, you know? So anything to ground and and thank God you have such a supportive husband who can say the right thing. What's the wrong thing that he could say in a panic attack? Calm down. (laughs) Right. (laughs) People do not say calm down to anybody. Ever, really. No. And this was actually an interesting thing that, that, you know, he and I had to work through because what I realized, uh, news to me, he's not a mind reader. He doesn't automatically know the right things to do and the right things to say. Mm -hmm. So I have a lot of people ask me like, oh, I don't have anxiety, but my spouse does or my child does or my friend does. What can I do for them? And what I always say is like, you need to have a conversation. Yeah. And the anxious person, like it is on us to say, hey, when this happens, this is what I need you to do. This is what I need you to say. And it feels really like, you know, dictatorial in the Mm -hmm. moment, but it empowers him Mm -hmm. to know exactly what I need in those moments when I'm struggling because he used to try to hug me when I was having (laughs) a panic attack, Yeah, which is incredibly sweet. And it made me want to punch him in the face mm-hmm. because I, I felt like I was being smothered. I couldn't handle the touch. Like it was just awful. Yeah. And what I was able to tell him is I was like, you know, if you can just take one hand and put it on my back, like near my shoulder blade and just stay right there with me. Mm. And, and that was what I needed. Like I needed to know he was close, but I didn't want to feel like I was being smothered. Yeah. I wanted to feel that support of the hand on my back. Yeah. And he, how was he going to know that? Right. And everyone's different. Yeah. Because I actually want to be put in a lock when I'm panicking. I want the hug. I want to feel like I can't go anywhere. So that would be great for me, but not for you. And so everyone's different. So you have to have the conversation, you know? Yeah. I'll send him over to your house next time because he's a really good hugger. <laughs> well, this, and I know we're out of time, but if I can just pick your brain for a couple more minutes about, because, you know, I actually don't know much about social anxiety. Um, I have the thought that everyone does that like, you know, oh, I just don't like being around people or going to parties or I don't know what I'll say to someone. And it's like the way you put it in the book um, is so like, it, it really, I was like, oh, that's what it is. You said social anxiety is the intense and persistent fear of being watched and scrutinized by others, causing extreme self-consciousness. It is essentially pathological shyness. And you said it's, it's, um, it's a feeling of being constantly embarrassed or humiliated by one's actions. It can, you know, be paralyzing. And, and then that can mix with, with your agoraphobia. So what, 
Yeah, I don't have a lot of experience with that. What What is that like and how do you cope? <laughs> it can be incredibly challenging, but I think like any of these mental wellness issues, it's something that you can work with. It is something that you can manage. It's something that can get easier if you know what you're dealing with. Mm -hmm. So I think for me, you know, doing a lot of the cognitive behavioral therapy helped. I think for me, working on my own self-confidence helped a lot. And just being able to name it and, and really understand what it was helped me to, to get more, more comfortable being in social environments. Also, I think another thing that's really important is learning how to say no. Learning how to say no to social interactions that make you really uncomfortable. Yeah. Like not feeling obligated to do every single social thing. And I know that's a big thing for people right now. You yeah. know, now that like we've spent such a long time not socializing and now we're starting to a little bit more and people feel like, well, I, you know, I haven't done anything for a long time, so I should say yes to every invitation. No, like no, no is a complete sentence. Just no, mm -hmm. you don't have to explain. You don't have to make excuses for yourself. You are allowed to have boundaries around what social interactions you have. And so that I think can be uh, that alone, I think, is really empowering so that you're really only doing the things that, that socially you feel okay about. And I think it's cool, like, you know, the pandemic helped me open up conversations with friends of mine that I didn't realize were socially anxious. And, you know, we don't lie to each other. You know, it's not, um, oh, I have a thing that day. You know, it's like, I have friends that are like, I'm comfortable doing this, this, and this. Don't invite me to that, that, and that. And yes. in the same way of like telling your husband what kind of touch you need during a panic attack, I think we can have conversations with our friends because again, they're not mind readers. So if someone invites you to your third barbecue, you say, no, now they're going to stop inviting you to everything. And you're like, no, I'll go to your book club. I just don't want to go to the barbecue. Exactly. I think people are so much more understanding and compassionate than we give them credit for. And hey, if they're not, then there's a friend you know is not really a friend. There you go. It's a, it's a great weeder outer. So lastly, I just want to know, well, first of all, I love that you, going back to your work with, with veterans, I mean, I've listened to the, the podcast episode where you were talking, um, was it Buzzy is his name? Mm -hmm. Yeah. It's a Vietnam vet. And man, you know, that kind of trauma that he's seen and that kind of PTSD that he still has and, and anxiety and I think it's important for people with anxiety, if people relate to us, oh, I'm a writer too, oh, blah, blah, blah. Go listen to anything that has nothing to do with what you relate to and hear other people's stories because, again, you know how people will always say, oh, well, how, I shouldn't feel bad because other people have it worse. That's not helpful. Other people don't want you to have it as bad as them. It just, that's your moment to get into gratitude for what you do have or you do have control over or just, just to know that, there's a lot of stories out there, not just ones that are exactly like ours. And I bet it was so scary too to go work with vets and go like, I'm not a vet. Why am I going to tell them to draw to, you know, like uh, that must have been so intimidating. 
It absolutely was. I had not intended on working with combat vets, but I was doing a lot of writing around anxiety and mindfulness online. And Carl Salazar, who runs Expedition Balance down in Texas, said, you know, I read your work. Do you want to come down to Texas and, and see what we're doing down here with vets? And, you know, it, it kind of turned into a real passion for me. And I absolutely love working with that community, but I was so insecure about it. Like I am a pacifist Canadian vegetarian. What the <laughs> hell am I doing hanging out with vets? Right. And so what I think is so beautiful is, is exactly what you just pointed out, that we can come from such dramatically different backgrounds. We can have hugely different experiences, but we can connect on this deeply human level of pain and suffering and joy and gratitude and how do we get over our past? And how do we move forward in an uncertain future? And everybody goes through that. Yeah. So what are the ways that we can connect even if our stories seem very, very different? I often find people whose stories are nothing like mine the most inspiring because the examples are so stark, you know, that it's like, oh, I get it. Okay, I see, you know. Um, and then what, so what's going on right now for you? Are you not doing live things due to COVID? It's, I noticed on your website, you're doing online anxiety courses? Yeah. So I'm doing a lot online. I have a yoga for anxiety class that I teach every week. I have a yoga for veterans class that I teach. I'm doing mindfulness workshops. Um, and I am just now starting to do more in-person stuff. So I'm going down to a, a college in Georgia in a couple of weeks to do a talk for them. I'm doing corporate events. Um, and so, you know, it's now kind of this mixture of in-person and online, which I think is probably going to stay that way for, for a while. I miss the in-person stuff. And so when you do a talk after, do you lead them through any exercises or is there a Q&A? Um, there's more work than the, the talk, I assume it's yeah, yeah. I, nobody likes to just sit there and watch somebody talk for an hour. So I really try to do a lot of interactive stuff. We will go through breathing exercises. We'll maybe do a little chair yoga. I have all kinds of kind of mindfulness activities that, that you can do things like I'm about to have a panic attack. What do I literally do in this moment? Mm. And then we always do a Q&A because um, I get sick of hearing myself. So I, <laughs> I love to hear other people. I love it. I mean, I there needs to be, you need to clone yourself. We need you in every school, every corporation, every everything. It's And you have so um, much training. I mean, those, what did you say? It was like 800 hours? Of <laughs> yeah, it's been, it's been a ridiculous amount. Yeah. Yeah. It's like five, I've, I've done my 500 hours of, tra of training with, with yoga specifically. And mm -hmm. then I've done meditation trainings and veteran trainings and yeah. It's amazing. I, I'm so inspired by your story because I just love the idea of a second act in life. Yeah. But Lisa, I am just so inspired by you. You're so, I just, you're so um, earnest and just fun that it, it's really great. Like in, in the sea of people that are just kind of selling snake oil at this point, like trying to yeah. um, monetize the anxiety epidemic yeah, I just, it's so nice to see such an organic um, person like yourself who's doing the work. And I'm, I'm so grateful you came on the show. Thank you. 
Thank you. It was, this was such a delightful conversation. You're amazing. Thank you so much. I hope you enjoyed my chat with Lisa Jacob. So let's talk about some of the takeaways from my interview with Lisa, some of the gems that she gave us. If you deal with your anxiety and depression, it will not make you less of an artist. In fact, it could lead to opening up your creativity even more. If you have anxiety, if you think you suck at meditating, with peace and love, as Lisa says, you are not special. And that's a good thing because it means you are not alone. You are normal. There is a solution for what you're dealing with. CBT is cognitive behavioral therapy, and it's a specific form of therapy that almost immediately gives you tools to cope with your anxious thoughts and behaviors. If you can't afford a therapist, you can at least Google cognitive behavioral therapy and read for yourself some of the tools that are freely listed online. Lisa mentions that John Kabat-Zinn was who opened her up to being aware of mindfulness and reading his work started her on her journey. I just wanted to spell that for you in case you weren't familiar and you wanted to read his work as well. It's John, J-O-N, Cabot, K-A-B-A-T, Zinn, Z-I-N-N. Lisa says when you're feeling resistant to something, something new or getting help with your anxiety, ask yourself, what would happen if I approached this with a bit more open-mindedness and a sense of, you know, I'm having a really hard time, so I'll try anything. If you're caught in your head and caught in your own drama, can you take just one breath? What would happen if you did that? Could you maybe go help someone else for a few minutes to get yourself out of yourself? What would that look like? People with anxiety are stronger than they think they are. You don't have to run away when things get uncomfortable. You are strong enough to be uncomfortable. Celebrate every single thing that you conquer as an anxious person. Don't belittle your accomplishments. Did you get out of your pajamas one hour earlier than normal? Celebrate it. Did you drive one mile on the freeway when you used to never even be able to get on the on-ramp? Celebrate that. Did you have two panic attacks today instead of five? Celebrate that you're a badass. And lastly, your loved ones are not mind readers and they may not know how to correctly soothe you during a panic attack or when you're having anxiety. So talk to them about it. Tell them what you need. Do this when you're not in the middle of a panic attack or a moment of anxiety. Come up with a plan of action so that they know exactly how to show up for you when you're anxious. And that is a form of showing up for yourself. Again, thanks for listening. Everything you need to know about Lisa is in the show notes. Anxiety bites, but you're in control. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. I'm Katia Adler, host of The Global Story. Over the last 25 years, I've covered conflicts in the Middle East, political and economic crises in Europe, drug cartels in Mexico. Now I'm covering the stories behind the news all over the world in conversation with those who break it. Join me Monday to Friday to find out what's happening, why, and what it all means. Follow the global story from the BBC wherever you listen to podcasts. Hey, I'm Jay Shetty, and I'm the host of the On Purpose podcast. And I had the opportunity to talk to one of Hollywood's major icons, Michael B. Jordan. In our conversation, Michael shares the highs, the lows, and everything in between 
offering a genuine glimpse into his world. The closest to getting what you want is always the hardest. People give up right before they get what they've always wanted to get. Listen to On Purpose with Jay Shetty on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. The Therapy for Black Girls podcast is your space to explore mental health, personal development, and all the small decisions we can make to become the best possible versions of ourselves. I'm your host, Dr. Joy Harden-Bradford, a licensed psychologist in Atlanta, Georgia. And I can't wait for you to join the conversation every Wednesday. Listen to the Therapy for Black Girls podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Take good care, and we'll see you there. My whole life, I've been told this one story about my family, about how my great-great-grandmother was killed by the mafia back in Sicily. I was never sure if it was true, so I decided to find out. And even though my Uncle Jimmy told me I'd only be making the vendetta worse, I'm going to Sicily anyway. Come to Italy with me to solve this 100-year-old murder mystery. Listen to The Sicilian Inheritance on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Bring a little optimism into your life with The Bright Side, a new kind of daily podcast from Hello Sunshine, hosted by me, Danielle Robay, And me, Simone Boyce. Every weekday, we're bringing you conversations about culture, the latest trends, inspiration, and so much more. I am so excited about this podcast, The Bright Side. You guys are giving people a chance to shine a light on their lives, shine a light on a little advice that they want to share. Listen to The Bright Side on America's number one podcast network, iHeart. Open your free iHeart app and search The Bright Side.